Ladies and gentlemen, now hosting the Rizzo cast, put your hands together for Steven Risotto. What is going on, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 89 of Rizzo cast. I'm Steven Risotto, and today we are joined by another special guest. It is Michael McHenry. He played uh, in parts of seven big league seasons uh, as a catcher with the Rockies, Pirates, and St. Louis Cardinals. He's now an analyst covering the Pirates with AT&T Sportsnet. Michael, thank you for joining me, and welcome to the show. Hey, I appreciate you having me. Thanks for uh, reaching out, and I'm looking forward to talking a little baseball. Yeah, no, for sure. And and I, when I was doing my research on who I wanted to have on, and I, I it's usually not a, not a huge process. I always just go down the timeline and they go, Oh, this person would be good. Your nickname is Fort. So like, <laughs> I, I have to hear more about that. That seems like the coolest nickname. So how did the nickname Fort kind of come about and you've kind of embraced it, it seems. Yeah. So you, you were telling me, you know, before we got on that you're into broadcasting, you did some games this year. Well, the broadcasters, when I came to Pittsburgh, the last me being McHenry and me being a five, nine, you know, kind of a little bowling ball. They were like, man, that guy kind of looks like a fort. And then it turned into, I love to block. I, I had a huge passion to keep the ball in front of me as a catcher. It was an old school mentality. So, you know, uh, Bob Walk and Greg Brown, they'll both claim that they gave me the nickname, but they started calling me the fort. And then there was an infamous call. I hit a home run to take uh, the lead in the game. And Greg Brown has some of the best calls you'll ever hear. So he made it kind of even bigger. And when I came back, it was still there. It was still very much like who they knew me by when, when it came to my baseball personality. They're like, that's the four. That's McHenry. That's the four. No Michael. I don't even think I even get called Michael most of the time, especially in Pittsburgh. But the crazy part for me is when you think of a nickname, you know, a lot of times it's from some silly story or whatever. It really was cool because that one followed me everywhere. No matter where I went. I mean, I left in 13 and played four more seasons. And the fort followed me, you know, from Pittsburgh from 13 all the way on. You know, it's 2021. I'm doing a lot of different things. And still, most of the time when people come up to me, they give me that look and they're like, are you the fort? I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a humbling thing. I'm, I'm very, like, lucky to have a good nickname. Could have been something really strange. Luckily, it's not. Yeah. Hey, clear the deck cannonball coming. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the fort. No, that's a pretty, that's a pretty badass nickname. Um, and I, I guess to kind of jump in here to what's happening now in baseball, uh, as a former player, and you mentioned before we got on here, a former union rep a few times, you know, kind of watching this situation unfold between major league baseball and the, the major league baseball players association, we're in like what week two now of this lockout. What do you hope if, if you were to take, if you were to have any desires and any hopes for the turnout and what happens in these negotiations for the new CBA, what would they be? Patience for the fans. Um, I'm praying that they uh, have a soft heart for, you know, some really unfortunate circumstances of the last couple of years with, with the COVID and with all the kind of, bantering back and forth they had to uh, do in 2020 and it seemed like they were never gonna put things together and you know baseball's always been that sport that found a way to get on the field you know you think about during the war times during depression no matter what there was baseball you know you think about filter dreams ray there's baseball it's the one you know and that's a really great quote but that moment was the first time it was really just stopped 
it wasn't there. You know, think about the 1918 flu, they were out there playing. I mean, and I think that put up a lot of like red flags when they couldn't get it going. You know, we all understood this was an unprecedented time. You know, I think there was a lot of patience and a lot of grace from the fans and from the players and the ownership. But then when they started leaking different things and it, it showed more and more about money and money and money. And I know like when people are not able to work and, you know, some misfortunate things are happening, people in families are sick or passing away. Like they don't want to hear about, you know, big world problems. They just don't want to hear that. So I think it was set up in a very tough way, but I think that was a kind of forecast of what was to come. And it's, it's really terrifying to me because I hope that they don't lose sight of what started it all right. To, to have a more balanced affair where, you know, almost 50, 50 style, right. The owners and the players 50, 50, it's still the owners get a little bit more than the players, but they own the team, right. What other business would give their employees all the money comparative. So you have to kind of balance out and understand that, at the end of the day, it is a business. They're treating it like a business and the players are actually a business. They're their own brand. They're trying to, you know, grow in their own personalities or whatnot. And Major League Baseball wants to enhance that. So there's a lot of moving pieces. What I hope is we start spring training on time. That's my only hope, but I'm not holding my breath. Um, I do like that the ownership, um, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying I like how Manfred goes about much of anything, but I do like how they said, we're going to stop the transactions and try to figure this out before we get to spring training instead of doing what they did last time and letting all the people sign and then shutting it down right at spring training. So all the guys that, you know, are just on the 40 man, they can figure some things out, get that moving piece to, you know, go train here, go do this because they're living in Florida and they can't go to the spring training site. Yeah. And the, the interesting part about it is I've seen guys tweet about how, you know, they're rehabbing from something and they can't even talk to the team doctors or strength <laughs> coaches. And it's, it's really interesting. Were you around during, I mean, you were around, but how old were you when, you know, 1994, do you remember much of any of that? Uh, I don't, I think I was really confused. Cause I was, I think I was nine and I just love the game, right? Like if I could sit still long enough, I'd watch it, but like, I'd be running around while the game's going on, no matter who's on, Ooh, I'm going to be Ron Gant today. I'm going to be mm -hmm. David Justice today. It didn't matter. I was imitating them while they were on TV, but they weren't there. So it was a very confusing time for me. It's, you know, when I was getting into baseball cards and all those things, so I was becoming a fan. And, you know, I, I feel like not a lot of people understand the role of a player rep. And, and you said that that was kind of your, our union rep. And, and, and you said that you served as uh, one a few times. So what, what is kind of the role? for to to be a union rep what, what are your kind of your duties do you have to attend all these meetings what are some of the things that is required of you in that role you just have to stay up with what's going on so tony clark and his entire staff at the mlbpa they do an incredible job of, of pushing out information especially when you are playing and they let you know kind of hey here's where the talks are going and they have reps regionally like you'll see the same guy in colorado when you're at a homestand, usually comes to one or uh, two homestands a month, and he'll come and he'll, he'll find the reps and say, hey, what's going on? What's the buzz in the clubhouse? Is there some problems going on? Or is there anything that we could, you know, maybe sit down and talk with? But honestly, it's, it's kind of a well-oiled machine. I, I think the one um, tough thing is when we lost Mike Weiner, who was the top uh, or the head, he was more like a business guru. So he, he didn't have any of the player side to it. 
So him and Tony Clark were like a two-headed monster. Now you have a player in Tony Clark who's an amazing person and he does an amazing job, but he is a player and he's fighting for players. So he has a really tough balance because he's he's the head honcho now, right? Mm-hmm. When Mike Weiner was, that balance, was, he could kind of put him in his place. Like, hey, we got to look at it this way because Tony Clark will literally take a cannonball for the players. Like there's no doubt in my mind this guy loves – his job, he believes in what he's doing, and he's going to fight for what he thinks is right. But sometimes, you know, having a different perspective, like Mike Weiner and God rest his soul, I wish he was still here. He was, he was terrifying to the MLB ownership group. I mean, they were just terrified of him because he was able to talk above the owners because he could focus on that, knowing Tony nailed the players. So he was like, no, nope, no, nope, no, nope. that's not true. You know, you're lying. And he would just kind of talk them into circles and, he did that all the way through his cancer treatment, and everything else. So I was a part of all that. I watched that kind of all happen. I watched Tony Clark take the reins. So I, I got to see it kind of grow into something different. And they're, they're starting to try to do some things a little bit different, teaming up with NFLPA and doing some things that maybe could grow the status into a bigger, you know, L Corp but or C Corp, excuse me, and see what happens. Because that's the only way they're ever that we are ever going to compete with the ownership group ever. Yeah, that's that's interesting stuff. And, you know, they're they're trying to pump out this CBA. They're trying to agree to a few things. And a lot of the stuff is with financials and service time and all that. But there might be some stuff that correlates to on the field changes. And I this is so much fun to ask people this and to have these discussions. So I'm going to I'm going to ring off a few here. Um, I want to get your take on shifting. And as a right handed hitter, um, you know, I guess shifting wasn't more wasn't really you know, right-handed hitters, it was more recent. It, it evolved more recently. You know, we would always have shifts on Ryan Howard and, um, you know, even far back as Ted Williams and and right. big left-handed hitters like that. Now everybody's getting the shift. So, you know, you could throw that out the window. What is your thoughts on, on shifting? Like, should that be something discussed? I mean, do you think that there should be two guys on the right side only with, you know, playing on the dirt or should they have free reign? Because, you know, I know the main argument is, well, Bill Belichick's allowed to deploy his defenders anywhere. Uh, what do you think should be done about the shift, if anything? Well, if you're going into a competition of any kind, I don't think you put handcuffs on anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if they want to play 15 guys on the right side, you let them play 15 guys on the right side, right? You may have to pull those guys off the field because that's too many players on the field. But if they want to try to sneak that in, I think that's entertaining. I think seeing – guys halfway out in right field when Joey Gallo's up, seeing four outfielders in the third inning, right? And not seeing the guy bunt and take his hit is, is, is hilarious. But what's going to happen, just like it always has in this game, guys adapt. They start to do things. And they start to change. But at the end of the day, and I don't know if you ever like talked to anybody about this, until they change the value of certain things, no matter what they do with the shifts and everything else, it won't matter. Like, not having shifts, they think, oh, well, the productivity will go up. Well, or whatever their concept is. That was the one meeting I sat in. They said, yeah, we're trying to look for more offense, more stuff going on. Well, then reward the players and pay them for it. If that's what you want, moving a guy over, hey, that's the same as a sack bunt now in, in the pay status when you go to arbitration. You want to change the thoughts of you know the teams and, and actual players, change the way the green comes into their pocketbook. That's it. That's what, like you just said a minute ago, that's what they're fighting over 99% of the time is 
you know, just little nooks and crannies where money is. And right now there's money coming in from all directions, but the fans aren't coming to the games. So the it's growing and growing and growing, but the fans aren't coming. So that experience to actually be there where you really get a hold of, you know, the players and understand who they are. And you kind of have that feel it become a reality, kind of like your Superman logo back there. Like they, they, they become Clark Kent instead of Superman, you know, cause you've been seeing them on TV. So I think they're trying to figure that out, but at the end of the day, it's how you reward the players and how you reward the teams, because that arbitration thing is a nasty, nasty animal when you get to it. Yeah. Incentivize the guys that hit the ball to all fields, you know, right. that, you know, th- that, that should be something that, uh, major league baseball should focus on there. Uh, and, and I know that catchers, you know, as a former catcher yourself, tempo and pace of the game is huge. And, um, I personally don't think it's a problem. I think it's more of a money-making thing, but you know, if if there was a pitch clock in there and and they did implement a pitch clock and I've heard some things about it, how it's helping in the minor leagues and is shaving, shaving minutes off, but does baseball really need to, you know, have time shaved off of it? Is it really in that dire of a situation? So my thing is people are going to, they're already at the game, right? So like, if it's a three-hour game, they're there for the entertainment. If it's a four-hour game, they're there for the entertainment. So, yeah, I think it's a kind of weird way to go about it. I think there's a bigger reason for it that, you know, maybe the ownership group doesn't talk about. But there's a lot more that goes into that. If you go and look at uh, some of the studies on guys in the minor leagues, you have to train a little bit different to understand that pitch clock because you actually don't get your heart rate back down if you're training as a – you know, 101 guy, 102, like where you're kind of releasing all energy, you know, really a quarter mile approach and you need to be a half mile approach when you think about driving a car and they're going to have to change some things. If, if they do that pitch clock, it's going to change everything, but there's always a workaround. You know, when they implemented the whole uh, batter's box thing, you know, when I was there, <laughs> it was a, there was a workaround, right? Ball comes back, like anywhere near you, you can get out and walk ball be outside. You'd lean back and get out. Like, and they couldn't say anything because, man, I just didn't feel comfortable in the box. I had to get out. You may get a warning and it kind of moves on. So, you know, I think they're trying a lot of weird things that, in my opinion, I don't think will help. And when you're telling a guy to breathe through his nostrils and, you know, wear his garter to make sure that he can slow his mind down and then you want to speed him up, I don't know if that's the best way to go, right? So, like, you have kind of this double-edged sword that is really not going to make any sense. And they'll obviously adapt and do whatever they have to do. But like you said, I do not think that's a problem. Take away the commercials, do more commercials in game, right? Do some things that can speed up the game for the people at home. Do the, uh, the red zone like they do in the NFL. Go every time Otani and Trout hit, go straight there, split screen everywhere. Like whoever that feature person is, right? They, they should just do stuff that'd be more fun. I have some really cool ideas that we, we sat down one day with a guy in Pittsburgh, a, a local writer in Pittsburgh, we just kind of bantered back and forth and they could do a lot of fun things, but they're so hyper-focused on, on the, I guess, big, huge picture that they don't even really share and they're not very transparent with us. So I don't know if they'll ever do it. Yeah. Hopefully your ideas come to fruition. And <laughs> um, I, I laughed at the batter's box thing because I feel like that just died after like three months and they just stopped enforcing it. I don't know how it was on, on your guys' side of things, but you know, as, as fans of the game and as spectators of the game, it just seemed like it just went away. And, and I guess 
you know, I guess it's really tough for umpires to enforce something. Maybe they don't necessarily, you know, you don't necessarily have the attention of all the umpires, you know, kind of like what they were doing with the, uh, with the walking off the mound and checking the glove. And I talked to one of the giants relievers, Jay Jackson about this. And I was like, what do you guys say during that situation when he has your glove and in your hat? And he was like, yeah, one time, you know, one of the umpires told me, you know, Hey, I don't want to be doing this, but we have to do yeah. it. So yeah. <laughs> that's exactly. That, that's yeah. kind of like, the, that's the last thing you want, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're enforcing your employees to do something that they don't want to do. And like not a lot of guys got in trouble. Right. Mm-hmm. And the reality of that is like Rob Manford just threw something out in the ocean there. Like there was no need for that right in the middle of the season. They could have done it and implemented it in the, at the end of the season. And I know Tyler Glass now said something about getting hurt, right? That there's a possibility of that. Well, the science backs him up, right? If, if you're gripping something harder, you're putting a lot more pressure on your arm and everything else. And he's a guy that needed to, you know, stay loose, stay relaxed. So yeah, that, that sunscreen and rosin, that is a part of the game. It's been a part of the game for as long as we know, or water and rosin that is as sticky as anything else. It's amazing to me that they, they went in and guys got terrified. And yes, maybe some spin rates went down, but they also did, if you just saw the article, they also implemented balls differently this year. They used two different balls. So maybe that had something to do with it, right? Or maybe it was that guys actually got tired after 65, 70 games because they only played 60 games the year before, right? And they still made them play, what, 32 uh, spring training games? Mm-hmm. So like they, they don't take everything into account except when they're trying to go to arbitration and they use all the data, all the analytics. But when it comes to that stuff, they just give you enough, right? They give you what the what what they think you want to know, what you think you need to hear, so they can get whatever they're trying to do. Because it really makes no sense. Like homers are great, right? I love homers. Let them stay in the game. Let's have a juice ball. Guys are throwing 180, so like it's fun when you actually square one of them up. Let's just let it be. These guys mm-hmm. don't need a softer ball. They don't need a, a mound to go back. They, like let's just keep playing. It's been really good for a long time. And you mentioned Glasnow. Glasnow, a friend of the show, had him on almost a year to the day. Nice. Didn't, didn't have superstars, but that's that's the exception. He's, he's there. a superhuman. Is what he's he is. a superhuman, and he's really good on this kind of thing. Like I know he does a podcast with Chris Rose. Yeah. Um. And and he was talking about the his forearm. How you know once you have a forearm injury, you know more times than not, you know your UC uh your elbows affected too. So, uh, and he was talking about that and it was just a tough situation to implement that thing mid-year. And I guess, I guess Rizzo cast has a bit of a curse going on right now. Cause Glasnow ended up getting hurt right after that. Mm. Jay Jackson. Mm. <laughs> Jay Jackson. I'm retired. No, sir. Yeah. Jay Jackson. Well, the gym was... after this, you shouldn't say that. No, sir. <laughs> yeah. The dumbbell's going to fall on your head. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The ho- hopefully you're not part of the curse and hopefully we could avoid nah, that. Nah. Um, I-, I do want to ask you, and this is where you, you'll, you know, you'll either really divide people or you won't. The designated hitter is quite the hot topic here. And me, like, in my opinion, I, I could, I'm fine with either. Like I, it, it really, like I saw it in 2020 happen in the national league. And is there still plenty of um, strategy in baseball? Yeah. And I think the double hook thing is out there too, where they have the DH until the starters out of the game. So that would prohibit any, you know, pinch hitting for in like the fifth inning and a guy's throwing the ball really well, but in the fifth inning, you have the bases loaded and you need that chance to score runs. Um, and I think that's, that's not why guys are throwing less innings on the mound, but 
I think it does. It would help the starter go deep into the game. So what do you think about the DH? Because I know this is a very decisive topic here. So um, there's there's been one rule that I, I could see that would be a good in-between for the time being is once the starter leaves the game, you have to start pinch hitting. Um, but up until then, you can have it have a DH. Uh, I, I think I think that that kind of plays right. But you know, how do you work that in? You know, it, it just all really kind of um, you're worried about has your to, has to play out different ways. <laughs> but like, I would like them to separate the league still somehow. Yeah. You know, like we we do have that really cool um, thing that you know most leagues don't have. Like NFL, same NBA, same. We have, we have one giant rule that's completely different. And when the American league has come over, they got to figure it out. So it's, it's, it's kind of a neat thing, but you know, I get it both ways. Like you said, um, and, and every time they say, Oh, we want to protect the pitchers. We don't want them to get hurt on the base pass. I'm like, guys, a major league baseball player. He runs sprints every day, right? An athlete. He, He plays catch every day and they claim to be the best athlete on the field. Most of the time. I'm friends with a lot of pitchers being a catcher. So like these guys love to hit, you know, and when they do get a hit, when they do something big, it's devastating to the other team and it's a morale just crusher. But on the other side, it can build you up in a heartbeat. So I see it both ways. I I do think they're going to go to that DH. I think there's, you know, more, I guess, money. When you think about guys like Nelson Cruz, Josh Bell's eventually going to be, you know, a guy that's going to be a huge DH, but these big humans that, you know, could go out there and just hit gorilla bombs. I, I think that's going to play. So at, at hindsight, I guess, let's just see what happens. But I think we're going to see a DH. I really do. I really, really do. Yeah, no, I agree. And I like I was, the strategy the other way, though, so yeah. much. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And, and I, was a, I was a PO in high school, in, uh, in high school, and it was the greatest time of my life. And I had three at-bats, didn't even have to worry about hitting. It was fantastic. But uh, <laughs> that that's You're just trying to go go up there and go bombs right yeah, yeah that's that's pretty much it but we always see videos of you know kid last last uh at bat of senior year of po and he goes yard it's always a cool story but that's <laughs> neither here nor there so um i just had to had to pop that in of course um now i lost my train of thought because i was thinking about dropping bombs no, no but and I, I think i think a lot has to do with that like when i was in high school that was just starting right guys guys were just becoming just pitchers you know because yeah. baseball was really growing and we had a huge team so we we had some guys that just pitched but ultimately most of the guys that started they ended up playing position or whatever at most schools but we kind of started a trend that was early 2000s in the Tennessee area and ever since then the PO and all those terms have come into play and I think that those guys go to college they just pitch they get in a pro ball, they just pitched, they haven't picked up a bat since senior year in high school. And they're like, yeah, I've had three at-bats in the last nine years. And uh, Chapman's pitching today. I, I, I don't know, you know, like, so just kind of look at it from a, you know, perspective of guys probably being a little bit terrified going from high school all the way to the big leagues, and not hitting really anything but a machine. Yeah. And if your closer blows the lead in the ninth and then, you know, you, his spots do up, and, you know, you take the lead and you want him to go back out there for the 10th, he might have to hit. So, right. I right. mean, obviously nobody's going to do anything in those moments, but I do think it's cool to see the Otanis and the Michael Lorenzens and the Brendan McKay's in Tampa Bay come up. And I think it would be interesting to see a little bit more two-way players, but 
we'll have to see on that. Um, yeah, let's dive into Tennessee. You're a Tennessee kid uh, through and through. How did baseball kind of become a, a passion for you? I know every kid has their story. Well, I always say I slid out of the womb, ready to go. Um, <laughs> I was just, I was just ready to go. Um, really high energy guy and, and, and just loved being active. And baseball was the sport that just kind of, I guess, took me away. And no matter what, I loved basketball. It was my first love. I'm five nine. I'm very short deprived. So that wasn't going to work out. And ultimately, baseball was the thing that, you know, kept me out of trouble. It kept me, you know, hyper focused. It made me have good grades when I was a kid with two learning disabilities. So it, it kind of opened up the arena for me to be very disciplined and, and have a, I guess, grit and tenacity to do something really big. Because I wanted to play in the big leagues when I was five. And it never changed all the way through. And then when I retired, I was ready to retire and do something different. So I got to kind of walk through my journey, achieve my dream and leave on my own terms. So it was a uh, kind of very cool script and a lot of bumps in the road, bunch of injuries, things that were really uncontrollable, not that didn't take care of myself, just God given genetics said, Nope, you can't do that. And you know, tear, tear your knee up a couple of times. And, but I actually look back at those things. I'm, I'm actually very happy they happened because they've made me a, a better human being. They've made me you know, stronger in, in my relationships. They've made me look deeper into life. They've really made me understand baseball at a different level because I didn't take those times to just sit back. I, I learned as much as possible and became a fan again. So yeah, baseball captured me because like at Tennessee, you know, baseball was good and it's gotten better and better and better, but it was just something that I felt was more than just a getaway for me, you know, until I came into faith, it was probably my faith. It was like, eat, sleep, drink, dirt, get on the field and let's go. So. And was there a team that, that you watched in Tennessee? Like where's the nearest team? What was the team? What was your favorite team growing up? So we only got the Cubs, Cincinnati and the Braves. The Braves. So obviously it's the Braves, right? Uh, you know, you think about, my childhood, I had Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz, you know, Steve Avery, you know, Ron Gant, Dustin, uh, David Justice, you know, it goes on and on and on. I got to be in camp. My first big league camp was with Javi Lopez. I was literally like gooing and gagging. I was like, hey, Javi, how you doing? You play catch today? Can I carry your bag? You need some water? Like, I was such a little kid. And then I had Giles in, in that same camp, and I just kind of followed him around like a puppy dog because – you know, I'm 21 years old. I'm at big league camp and I'm there just to catch bullpens. Literally, that's what they told me. Learn and catch bullpens. And I just learned, caught bullpens and did anything that they told me to do because I thought those guys were legends mm -hmm. and stuff like that's cool. Like that, that was a like little boy dream of mine. You know, if I got to catch, you know, Smoltz or Maddox or Glavin, I mean, that's the only way I think it could have gotten better at that moment. Yeah, no, for, for sure. And, and, is it time for, for Nashville to get a big league team? Like, yes. are, are you on that yep. train? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pump up Nashville for a second. So fastest growing metropolitan area in the entire country. Um, it can support a team. Obviously, if you look at the Titans and you look at how the Smashville's doing, mm -hmm. they love their sports. Um, I think there's other cities that can do it, but I think it's time to expand. I think there's too many good players. Even those guys that, you know, the quote unquote 4A players, there's too many of them and you can put together a really good team and Nashville would actually be a bigger market than a lot of these teams. It's turning into an Atlanta right now. So I live in Murfreesboro. 
it's south east of southeast yeah southeast of uh nashville we're a metropolitan area now like i'm at a hotel getting a roof put on our house it says marriott nashville southwest murfreesboro so like that that's brand new we became a metropolitan area so they're trying to make this place huge and and i i really do think that it would be you know a game changer for the league I, i'd be interested to see where they go obviously probably be in the AL East is, 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 or maybe actually my thought would be, they would be in the central Pittsburgh would be in the East. Cause then you'd have all the same time zones. So we'll see. It's going to be, it's going to be cool to see if they could pull that off during this bargaining agreement. I think Durham or, or Charlotte deserve a team. I'd like to see Orlando get a team at some point. And then you obviously think about maybe Portland or, or somewhere out West that could handle a team. Vegas is always in the mix, but um, it, it's good for the city. I, I think it's really, really good. So yeah, Montreal. If they're thinking of Montreal, these, yeah, that would be a, that would be a cool one to see baseball back in Montreal. Um, seventh round pick by the Rockies in two thousand six. Uh, and and I one of the the catchphrases and maybe not catchphrases, but trends on this show is guys come on here and they they explain their draft story or they explain their their big league call up story. So where were you? What were you doing when you got the call that you were drafted by the Rockies? Do you remember? Yeah, I, of course. You do. <laughs> I remember. Come on. Uh, yeah, I was, I was in Knoxville. Uh, I was at my parents' house and, you know, her family was there and some of my friends or my wife, my future wife, her family, my, some of my family and a bunch of my friends were there and we kind of waited around. I was projected a little bit earlier. And about when they drafted a guy in my, uh, in the Sun Belt, another catcher, I kind of got defeated. Um, cause I was all conference last two years. I was all American my junior year. And I, I'd, I'd been promised a lot. And I was a kid that believed just about anything. I, I believed I could climb my way to the moon if somebody gave me a long enough ladder. And so that, that hurt. So I walked outside by myself and I went out and just started shooting basketball is way I always clear my mind hitting off the tee, shooting a basketball or going to run. And I went out there and sure enough, I'm, I'm shooting some free throws and they run outside and uh, the Rockies drafted me. And I think it was pick 198. So Scott Corbin called me. I hadn't talked to him in eight months. It wasn't a team that was on my radar. Kind of blew my mind that they were the team that drafted me, but I got really excited. And he was like, all right, get it done, get signed and get to try cities. I was like, yes, I'm staying in Tennessee. He goes, not quite tri-cities washington i was like what like washington state like way way up there in the corner yep that's where you're going i was like all right let's roll so that's how that's how it happened and you know it's it's a lot different nowadays i wish that analytics were there i wish that you know there was more exposure in social media it makes me feel old saying that but uh, i think those type of things have really changed the game and it's given guys like jose altuve is a great example right Paul Goldschmidt, 13th rounder, and he's continued to grow his game. And those, those, those guys would probably not be missed, right? Jose Altuve wouldn't have to beg to get on the field in Venezuela. You know, Paul Goldschmidt probably would have been a first-round draft pick, you know, because they'd be like, yeah, all the signs point to this guy's going to be really, really good. So I, I think it's, it, it's really changed. And it's been fun to watch it change, and I think it's good for the guys that, you know, will fight and, and be gritty like we were talking about before we got on the show is, you know, a lot of guys fight their way to get up there and it's even harder to, you know, stay there. It's easy to get pushed off the mountaintop. 
Yeah. Of course you remember. Why wouldn't I have thought that you remember? <laughs> of course I remember. Yeah. Of course. Remember your first kiss? Come on. <laughs> Do you remember? Uh, no, but who was that catcher that was taken before you that you felt defeated? Do you feel comfortable Honestly, saying his name? I, I was remember? just trying to think of his name and I can't think of his name, but he was, you know, like he was built like a Greek guy. I remember like he, he, he was built different, right? He, he could run, he could throw, he had all the projectable tools. But like when push came to shove, I kept beating him and beating him be- and beating him. And I still couldn't get past him at the like MLB view, right? Because it's projectability and blah, blah, blah. And that was tough. You know, I was always told I was too short and too slow. And then I get fast and then it's, oh, well, you're not flexible enough because you're, you know, you're built like a little bodybuilder. It was just always something. And I would fix the problem to a certain extent, the best I could, obviously could never do anything with heights. You know, I, tr- I tried to lie on my, on my uh, baseball card that didn't work. So, you know, you, you do whatever you can, but you know, when, when guys tab you, it makes it really, really hard. And I think that's really changed because of analytics, there's good and bad to it. But with analytics, you can look at it and say, well, I actually see more here And Tampa Bay is a great example of absolutely leveraging that not having to spend a ton of money and actually using their money more wise than most teams do mm-hmm. yeah now we'll find the name of that catcher i will i will put my heart and soul into that after the show you know well <laughs> he went to western kentucky and West, yeah. yeah i'm pretty sure he was probably a good guy but he was he was a nemesis when i was in uh um college so yeah who was it yeah pretty sure he was a good guy we'll stick with that um yeah i mean he was playing ball he was a competitor <laughs> so he's a good guy yeah uh, so the catching position, I mean, it, it has so many intriguing mindsets now. I mean, there's so many ways to look at it. Some catchers prioritize the relationship with working with pitchers. Others focus on their framing. Others focus on working with pitchers. Others focus on just being productive at the plate and dropping bombs. Uh, and then the really good ones focus on all of them. What was kind of your focus as a, as a catcher? So, you know, when I got drafted, I was, I was known for a guy that had good chemistry with this staff um, at middle Tennessee state from freshman year on, I called my own game. And even then that wasn't normal. So yeah, I had an edge. Um, so I, I was already calling for seniors and, and, and whatnot as a freshman. So I had an ability to understand how to adapt within the game kind of on the fly because we didn't have that good of pitching, especially my sophomore and junior year, we kind of had, guys that had to grind and, and figure some things out. They may throw sidearm, they may spin around like, you know, Johnny Cueto and do some different things to try to mess up some timing because the stuff wasn't as good as other guys. So that was an advantage going into pro ball that I don't think necessarily they knew until I just got in and started working with, with, with uh, a pitching staff and, and pitching coaches and whatnot. And that's still a huge passion. Of mine. I love catching bullpens and working with guys, but I think offensively, it was probably my, my, my thought going in and, you know, being able to keep the ball in front of me. I had a really, really good arm early on. I, I threw out a ton of runners in the minor leagues. I think I ended up at 40% or so. So I kind of had a mixed, mixed review, depending on who you talk to. Guys would say, oh, he's a defensive-minded guy. Other guys would say, oh, he's an OPS guy. So it kind of changed depending on the year, the season, and really the opportunity. Like. Tampa Bay wanted me my last year to hit and play other positions. You know, other teams wanted me my last year, a team called and they kind of brought up the entire works to get me to just be a part of the staff in the sense of 
the liaison in between. So I was going to still play, but they wanted to kind of mold me and groom me as, as my career would move forward. It was a big market team and they wanted me to catch their premium guys. I did that in Tampa and it, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it, but you know, that's kind of where I ended up, right. I, I ended up as a kind of extension of the coaching staff on the field, being able to work with guys, adapt on the fly and keep the ball in front of me and put it, put together a competitive bat. I wish I, I wish I would have known all the ins and outs of the analytics and I would have done what I needed to do to my strengths um, and, and become maybe better at certain things, but the focus wasn't there. So I didn't, I didn't know that until it was a little too late. So as a, as kind of a defense, you know, you mentioned you, you worked well with the pitching staff. Did that take pressure off you from the offensive side? Cause I always hear about catchers who, and not just catchers, this goes for anybody that, is you know often regarded as a as a premium defensive player, uh, and I've noticed it especially up the middle. Uh, does it take some pressure off you offensively? So my best year was in 2014. I, I had a really good year. I was I was a backup catcher. I owned being a backup catcher. So my only thought every day going to the ballpark was be a backup catcher. Work with your guys. Catch the bullpens. Do the extra work. My swing was the last priority because I always spent a ton of time in the cage. I loved it. I had a shirt that said cage dweller on it and I wore it every day because I'm, I'm a guy that when, when I look back at my career, all I miss is the grind. I miss the work in the cage, you know, the, the breaking of the blisters, the bleeding of the batting gloves. I miss that stuff. But I knew that in that moment, that was my best chance to stick in the big leagues for a long time. So that's what I did. And it was just serving my guys, whoever I could serve, whether it was, you know, a guy that's just coming up or, you know, maybe it's a coordinator that's coming in. I just go talk to him. How are you doing? What's going on? And, and try to grow as, you know, that backup. Cause I wanted to be the best backup catcher in major league baseball. And I believe I got really close that year. I, I, I take you know, pride in, in that year because it took a lot of, you know, swallowing of my ego, not to want to try to be a starter. You know, I, my entire career was a fight to, try to get more games, more at bats when I got to the big leagues and the door didn't open very often. And when they said it was going to it, it, it shut really fast. So after that injury in 13, I, I kind of took hold of this is what I'm going to do. And it was all because of how I went about what you were saying, calling the game, blocking the ball, doing what I needed to do to help that guy succeed on that day and make sure he gets all the credit. Those are some really good pirates teams, by the way. 2013 14 there's some really mm -hmm. good players on those teams um mm -hmm. what was kind of your preparation before you know you know you're in the lineup that day let's just say that you know you're in the lineup that day you know you're catching a guy like you know aj burnett or something francisco liriano what is kind of your preparation because i know we hear a lot about catchers and pitchers working together in the video room with a pitching coach or going over scouting reports somewhere what was kind of your your pregame routine on a start so if, if the guy was anxious or he was a youngster, it, I would have to have a different approach comparative to AJ or, or Liriano. Like AJ Burnett didn't want to sit down and do a scouting report. He, he had his <laughs> tendencies. He had his trends that he wanted to go at and attack, right? He was on attack mode the entire time. So he was actually very easy to catch. You just had to manage his emotions, right? Get him fired up when he needs to get fired up punch tickets when we need to punch tickets and try to, you know, allow him to throw that nasty sinker and predict, you know, Hey, where's the best place to put this right now 
watch his arm action, see where the ball is actually moving. Sometimes guys' balls actually moving differently than they even understand. Sorry, Morton was a great example of that. You had to direct his ball. And what I mean by that is some days his, his, his fastball would cut, you know, every third or fourth time. So I'd have to kind of have that in the back of my mind so that sinker wouldn't float back over the middle or that cutter, you know, wouldn't run away at a certain time. So I would, I would have to maybe set it up, maybe have him over adjust. I wouldn't tell him. I just move differently. So that was the first thing is I have to understand these guys from a physical standpoint. And then most importantly, I'd call the game to their personality. And, and I don't know a lot of people that ever talk like that, but instead of going with a philosophy or just a scouting report, I'd spend my time. I'd understand that. Like, for example, I always say Adrian Gonzalez never hit a 2-0 uh, breaking ball ever, ever. Last I checked, like, obviously he's not playing, he's playing Mexico. He would take it almost every time. So if I was in a pickle. That's something I knew I could throw and he was not going to swing at it. Even if the guy's breaking ball stunk and it worked every single time. So like those little things that you see you trend, like, okay, I'll keep that in the back of my head just in case I need it. And then after that, it's what the, what the guy has that day. How's he doing that day? And what does he need? Cause I'm just going to serve him and try to help, you know, squeeze that juice out of him like an orange the best I can that day. But ultimately when he picks up the ball, it's his conviction that is going to be win or lose. So I want to make sure he's convicted in everything he does. Like a lot of times I go out, if they're shaking me off, I'm like, Hey, what do you want to do? They say what they want to do. I say, all right, be convicted and miss down like lower than low. Like, and as we went further on, I would make a scouting report with that nine boxes and I would circle where their strengths are. And then I would circle on every single guy and I just lay it, lay it there, like where they should throw their pitch. Like, Hey, on this guy, he doesn't hit. He's a dead red fastball guy. Your change up. I know you love it. It's really your third best pitch, but you're going to want to throw it. You can throw it for a strike here on these other guys. Absolutely not. So you kind of just play the guy like glass. is a great example. I would say glass. Now you're superhuman. Okay. I'm going to get you a Cape and they're going to play super music as you're walking to the mound. And no one should hit you today because you throw lightning bolts. And I would just feed him, you know, confidence because I watched him in Pittsburgh and I faced him and I was like, this guy should never get hit. Like he's really different. Like he's releasing the ball and I feel like he's picking my nose right after it. It's just not right. That's so church. you got to play it out that way. Yeah. That's church right there for all you young <laughs> catchers. That right there is church. Um, <laughs> one thing I want to ask you is, you know, we've seen the new trend for, for catchers that, focuses on them trying to get that low strike by mm -hmm. setting up kind of on one knee. And um, I first realized that it was getting, it was kind of infiltrating the game when I saw Buster Posey start doing it here in San Francisco. And when I saw him adapting to it, I said, wow, this must be something that is pretty effective, but there's a downside to it. You know, we've seen some, you know, there, as there is a downside to most things uh, in baseball that you try to change, do you like that strategy or, or, or would you like to see the more conventional catching back in the game? Cause I know that there's some, some, a lot of old school pitchers that I've heard kind of criticizing uh, the uh, I guess the amount of flexibility that the one knee gives you. So that's what I would say is I, I would, if I teach a kid how to catch, I, I challenge them to change their position consistently. Mm -hmm. So throw, throw with one knee down, throw with the other knee down, know have a narrow stance had a wide stance and it's really about the mobility of, of the guy like if you look at jacob stallings with the pirates 
he's hypermobile. He's six five and he's hypermobile. So movement isn't a problem in a short area. I called him the cheetah because he could move really fast in a six foot area. I felt like Buster Posey could catch on one knee his entire career because his hands were so good. He picked most of the time. He didn't block most of the time, right? Molina, same thing. His hands are so good and he's so good at having that predictable move to get to the ball when he needs to block, but not everybody are those guys. And the thing is, is you're seeing more guys like um, uh, Mitch, is it Garver with the twins? You know, he's a, he's a, he's a guy that looks like you play shortstop real Muto guy. that looks like you play shortstop. Grandall looks like he could, you know, run out and go in the middle of the diamond. Like a lot of these guys look like they're middle infielders first. And now they, they, they went behind the plate. You know, you don't see many Sal Ferzano's anymore. You know, the big, big bulky guy that's back there and nothing gets by him. He's got a bazooka. You're seeing guys that are super athletic. Not that Sal couldn't be a shortstop. I love Sal. He could be whatever he wants because he could eat me alive. So I don't want to make him mad. So I think, I think it's a cool trend. I, I don't think necessarily that I love or hate it. I, I really love it for certain guys. And I'll, I'll tell you a, a truth is most of the time, if you go and you have a 16-year-old throw to second base, have them throw once where they're in that normal stance, secondary stance. Then the next one, have them throw from a knee. I bet the one from the knee is faster. Wow. And the reason being is they actually stay close to the ground. And it's actually made a lot of the big league guys better blockers because they're not high and they don't get caught in between. And they have to have a little bit of readiness going that direction. If it's coming with a slide or whatever, have you, and they're having to be more athletic. They're training their bodies a lot differently. So that mobility for these older guys and these younger guys, if they do it at least in practice and, and try it and, and make themselves a little vulnerable, I think it benefits them, even if they don't do it necessarily in the games. I had a lot of kids I worked with last year that we did it the entire time. I'm like, how'd it go? They're like, well, when you got on second base, I, I just couldn't do it. I'm like, cool. It doesn't matter. When the confidence comes, great. And to be honest, like the mobility is, is still a little bit janky. So, you know, you want to make sure you feel comfortable. And there's certain guys, as you know, you're watching a game and the guy's all over the place. And that's when you just say, I'm going to be wide. I'm going to have a lot of movement. I'm just going to help this guy figure it out and give him this huge barn door to throw at. And that's where you don't want to necessarily get small. You want to say, hey, just get it here. I'm going to try to funnel it in. And I think you just have to continually look at what the game's telling you, what the pitcher's telling you, and really what your body's telling you. You know, if you're, if you're down on one knee and your receiving sucks, I don't think it's necessarily that you need to be down on one knee or anything else and not getting the low pitch. So it's kind of – Got to play it out, you know, be real with yourself, but understand what are you, what are you feeling while you're doing it too? Yeah. I want to, I want to talk real quick about uh, Jacob Stallings because the cheetah as you, <laughs> you refer to him as, and he's, he's recently been traded to the Marlins, but getting to watch him every day and he's a platinum, you know, glove winner. He's a gold glove award winner. Now, how cool has it been to watch him play defense? Cause he's not a household name nationally. Yeah, and and too, like he he doesn't do anything spectacular. Mm-hmm. He 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 just does it well every day. You know, like I I have a I have a thing right now that I think the the predictable players being overlooked in Major League Baseball. So what I mean by that is like Jacob Stallings, right? The guy's gonna hit 230, 245 on a great year. He may hit 250 and have an OPS over 800 on a great year if everything lines up. 
but you know he's gonna he's gonna produce some RBIs. He's gonna get some big hits. That's predictable. He's been that way even when he was you know a, a floater between AAA and the big leagues. And you knew he could call a game. He cared about his staff. Catching came first, and he was a good clubhouse guy. So all those things are predictable. And I think that gave him the opportunity to grow behind the plate because he was so good at getting the little things done, receiving the ball, working with umpires, working with the staff, and, and being a guy that you know everyone seemed to like and everybody wanted to throw to, that he was able to, hey, I'm going to try some things different. I'm going to really work on my receiving. You know, This year, it was the blocking that really put him over the mark, being able to keep guys from moving up bases because he didn't throw as well and he didn't actually receive as well as he did the year before, but he blocked tremendous, like as good as I could have ever imagined someone blocking the major leagues. And his run preventions were, were just unreal. So at the end of the day, he understood who he was, what his capabilities were, and then he saw areas where he could improve, and he just absolutely smothered them with work. How far is Pittsburgh away from competing in the National League Central? Loaded question. It is a loaded. Uh, let's wait till the CBA is done, because if they okay. do a floor, it could happen real fast. Yeah. Um, because if I, I said it to somebody the other day, like Pittsburgh's never going to compete. I was like, if they have a floor of a hundred million next year, that's $70 million. Almost these guys got to figure out how to spend. Like they could go get anybody. Right. And then compliment them with all these young pieces. And th these one year deals are going to help the pirates. Like these things that are happening with Max Scherzer and Trevor Bauer at $40 million, that stuff's going to end up helping the pirates because the pirates, could sign a guy to a one-year, $20 million contract and not be locked in and not kill him. That's what Tampa Bay is doing, right? One- to two-year deals with guys like Charlie Morton. They went out and got a, um, Waka, Michael Waka for $8 million. And that's, that's going to help those teams. And if they do a, a floor, I mean, watch out. You never know because they got Key Bryan at third. He, he's a gold club caliber. They got Perez now who I think is, honestly, if he's healthy – He's a better player than Jacob Stallings. So you got, you got Perez behind the plate. You have Brian Reynolds in center. You have a superstar in the making, O'Neill Cruz, who still kind of out there if he's going to be a shortstop, right fielder. But you, you have a lot of good pieces, and it, it's going to be interesting to see kind of how, you know, they kind of put it all together and, and what comes out of it. But they're going to have a huge, huge uptick in their development in the pitching side. Some of these guys that struggled last year, their numbers are going to trend way down coming into next year. So they're going to be better automatically on the mound. And, and the good thing about those one-year deals that you were talking about is that, you know, if it, if all doesn't work out, you could just make them available at the deadline and flip them. Correct. You know? And that's what so, they've been doing. Just like, yeah. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Yeah. yeah and they've been get... like Lay's potato chips. You can't just have one. They're just throwing them around. It's crazy. It's fun exactly. to watch because it's so different. Like the, the, the Pittsburgh community, gets wrapped up in they they want to see their guys stay and the way that you know Ben Sherrington's come in and just kind of cleaned house but there's a chance and I, I would say a very strong chance we're number one when it comes to best organization talent now um, especially after the Stallings I mean that Stallings trade netted us a guy that's going to walk into our rotation and be a one or a two for us mm -hmm. immediately so like yeah we lost Jacob Stallings I'm going to miss him I really like watching him play but we got a six, seven youngster who's already had success in the big leagues, you know, with the under, a, under a four ERA, we didn't, we didn't have a guy like that. Now we do. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we got Perez. It's just, 
he's doing some really cool things and who he drafted the draft this year. If you haven't looked at that, he got four first rounders. They were all projected to be first rounders. He got them all. And that just doesn't happen. So uh, I'm, I'm excited about where the future is going to go. wonder if one of them was a catcher from Kentucky who. <laughs> yes, actually. First oh, pick overall. No way. No way. Yes. Yep. That's right. It's a Louisville. That's yeah. right. Yep. Oh my gosh. I, I said that as a joke from, you know, I said, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> that's hilarious. That wild? Yeah. That's wild. No, that's, yeah. that's great. Yeah. No, <laughs> my mind is blown. Yeah. Um, if you have a chance, you should grab a hold of that kid. He's, he's a, he's a different breed. Um, he was in the booth with us one day and like, I didn't know if he was ready to like, go to buds or if he was ready to take over the world or like he just had a mentality of like i'm gonna go get it i'm not satisfied i want to accept the role of being a leader now and i was like man this guy is ready Henry to go Davis. yeah cool story about him he actually went to pirate city so anybody that's listening pirate city is kind of like a hotel for the youngsters at the spring training site it's kind of what it looks like a dormitory of sorts and he asked <laughs> He asked the farm director, hey, can I stay with a young Latin player so I can, you know, help him out, you know, introduce him to the culture and, you know, learn some of the language and blah, blah, blah. His best friend got drafted by the Pirates and his roommate at Louisville for three years. And he chose to live away. <laughs> like, it's just. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Like, I like this kid. I really like this kid. Like, that's not normal. And that's the culture they're trying to build. Okay, I'll try this again. The only catcher from Kentucky that you like. There we go. There we go. Sure. Yes. Yes. That, yes. that works a little bit better. Yeah. Well, that's that's a broad statement, but we'll, for now, that's the only one I know. Yeah. All right. And I will find the name of that catcher that uh, <laughs> that you were a little upset that went ahead of you in the draft. Uh, wrapping up here. Um, you know, you got your feet in broadcasting here in the TV world, and uh, you know, doing some Pirates games, doing some analysis. Tell me about the experience. How has it been so far? It's been interesting. I, I really kind of dove in because it's not something I ever thought I'd be able to do, let alone given the opportunity to do. And what I mean by that is as a kid, I had two learning disabilities that made me terrified to read in front of people, to talk in front of people. And, you know, luckily I married someone and I had a teacher that, you know, helped me figure out some things in a different way. And my wife is organization communications major, really good at brand marketing and whatnot. And like, she just kind of changed my world. She pushed me into these situations I didn't want to do. I'd sweat and I'd be nervous. And the emotion that would come out of it would just be miserable, but I just kept doing it. And I did it more and more and more. It created a great opportunity and it's been really neat. Like I've gotten into video editing. I've gotten into audio. I, I really should probably do more and put more stuff out, but I end up doing it, you know, as help for guys that want to enhance their career and, and do some things. So it's been fun. I've really enjoyed learning the production, you know, the, the, the truck, you know, how, the, how they have that all set up and all the things that go in and in a game. And honestly, probably my favorite part is all the mess ups because we're live, right? The monitor goes out and we're doing highlights. I'm stoked because you have to listen to your producer, tell you what's on the screen and you're coming up with, you know, what you're saying and you have nothing, you know, it's, it's, it, those things are, are thrilling and fun. But the, the main reason why I'm in it is because I was a kid that wasn't fortunate enough to maybe have a lesson or, or be able to work with somebody that, that costs money. 
right? We didn't, we didn't have, you know, enough money to go every week. So I went once a month, I did as much as I could and it's so expensive. So one of my favorite things to do is anytime I get to teach and, and I try to do it in, in a two-way like context since I'm in Pittsburgh is I have the old faithful that don't want to hear anything about like analytics. They don't want to hear about this guy could be good. They just care about his batting average and they care about winning. That's it. That's all they care about. That's great. So I get to teach those guys and they've opened up their mind a lot to, Hey, there's some new age to this, but the new age isn't different than the old age. We just can quantify it differently. It's, it's a lot quicker. We can find out if guys are good really fast. Like you, you would have gotten guys to the big leagues faster, you know, years ago, if, if we had this capability and then the youngsters, I think about them, there's so much information. It's overwhelming. So how can you make it simple for them? How can they get some tip or some opportunity learning from, you know, maybe it's a story of a guy kind of working through adversity, or maybe it's just one drill or something that, you know, could fix Brian Reynolds when he's struggling. I just make sure to kind of put that out there and hopefully some kid, you know, takes it, puts it in his pocket and it helps him. And so that's why I like, I really love doing it. And, you know, it's a platform to share, know the good there's a lot of bad in the world it's a, it's a platform to get away and, and share some good so i've enjoyed it um i'm interested to see where it's going to go there's a lot of moving pieces at at&t right now we just merged with discovery so there's going to be a lot of changes we're doing streaming and a bunch of different stuff so i'm actually going to be doing a lot of things i've never done before so i'm pretty pretty stoked about it yeah hopefully we get to see uh like maybe Greg Brown's in the bathroom for in the middle of an inning and then someone hits a leadoff homer and you get to call play by play on the homer. Is that, is that in the future? Yes. Just once, just once, just once, just once. Yeah. Yeah. I, I one thing I've been trying to like joke around with, like I want to do some like fun segments and I thought about, you know, you watch those ESPN shows where they go back and forth and they're, they're, they're arguing. Like I think about Steven Rose and, and basketball, uh, I thought it'd be hilarious if I like did Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde with myself. So like, I'm, I'm literally arguing with myself, you know, and cause there's been a couple of times where, you know, something happens with someone's family or whatnot and they're running late. And like, I've almost had to like be in the game. Like, here you go. Like, it's all you, you're running the whole show. And I always said, if that ever happens, if it really happens, I'm going to have a hat on one side and I'm going to keep changing. Like, and, and I thought it'd be fun. Like, would that be priceless? Like yeah, if Greg Brown awesome. did that, I think he'd be like world renowned. Like he's got such a big personality and it'd be fun for fans to see it. Cause they just see the, you know, the fun personality, but they don't get to see like the actual Greg Brown. They, they just know him as that voice. They'd actually get to see him in a little bit different way. It's, it'd be really funny. So. Yeah. Can't wait. Can't wait for sure. Michael, <laughs> I appreciate the time. This was a lot of fun or should I say Fort? This was a lot of fun. Uh, I appreciate the time and uh, you guys could follow him on Twitter at the Fort McHenry. And then of course you could follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at RizzoCast. Um, yeah, no, man, I appreciate you coming on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. I really appreciate you having me. It was, it was a lot of fun and I, I wish you luck and all you do keep in touch and you know, maybe we can do it again sometime. Yeah, no, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, so go ahead, subscribe to all the channels, uh, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your uh, podcast once again. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time.